Hi there, before we start, if you're new to our show, thank you so much for tuning into our program and we hope you'll stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. We're really grateful for all your kind words and encouragement. You really help this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of the people who look like us and as women and people who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple and Google or Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review. And if you'd like to support us, please head to Buy Me Coffee page to make a donation, which will help us to continue the intersectionality of the podcast industry. I don't think I've ever slept through a night without getting up to pee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like since I was 12, maybe. I think the last time I slept through the night was probably seven or eight years ago when I was staying at Sean's parents' place. Because it was like the, the the shared bedroom was outside yeah. the main house. So, right. so, you, so you just decided to... Yeah, I just decided to host it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Is... Well, I just got too tired during the day as well. But I don't think I could ever do that now. I'm in my 40s. And this is Asian Bitches Down Under. This is how we start our conversations. Talking about how much we pee during the night. <laughs> it's an important conversation, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary Absolutely. folks, and because uh, we don't talk about these things enough. We don't talk about, for instance, the clitoris, um, uh, and that you know, if if you're shocked, it's because you probably don't hear about it enough. You know, being said, people talk about the penis every single day. I mean, come on, guys, let's not kid ourselves. We live in a very phallocentric. <laughs> Uh, planet, unfortunately, yeah, everything revolves around the penis, and so it's like in our mainstream jargon. Uh, sorry, mainstream conversations, I guess. But the, the clitoris and its pleasures, um, unfortunately, is not something that's widely discussed. And I guess that is a strange. Um, it is a very strange uh, segue, you know, co- going from <laughs> discussions about our bladder tendencies to the clit. But you know, guys, we are Asian bitches down that we, we talk about understand. anything under yeah. the sun. Exactly. And um, Helen, I love to start my day by listening to an article on Autumn, perhaps the best, you know, the best app, the best yeah. platform ever. Stop. I, I have never stopped it. talking about it. So it is a platform where you can listen to the best um, feature articles being read to you by professional mm-hmm. voice, voice actors. And this morning I read one. I believe it was from uh, the New York Times and it was um, an opinion piece about uh, the lack of medical research and focus on the clitoris. Oh, okay. And so it started off with a story about a nurse who was uh, who had a sort of cyst on her clitoris, right? Mm-hmm. And so she went to get it checked out and then her gynecologist was a man. Oh. I mean, that already for me, I was like, oh, yeah, it's a I, I wouldn't even be comfortable. Pre phase of me rolling my eyes already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I, am, I, I wouldn't be comfortable having a man, um, even if, yes, well, I don't care that even if he's, he's a, a medical expert. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wouldn't be comfortable. Anyway, she, um, and he said that he was going to like kind of punch a hole in it and try and get it out. What sort of like yeah? yeah um, I mean, in broad, in in the vague terms, that's basically what he was going to do. And she thought, well, that sounds a bit drastic. However, he is the expert, so I'm going to trust him. Mm-hmm. 
Unfortunately, big mistake. Um, she, after the medical procedure, um, she wasn't able to orgasm ever oh, again. Shit. And when I heard that, I was just like, I was really, really, really up, like just devastated for her. I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, a lot of women, you know, sec female sexual pleasure is not is is really something that has come into the forefront, and you know, it's only in the last few depressed. decades. It's always been suppressed and not. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, been I um uh, kind of be idolized as a myth that woman wouldn't or wouldn't have orgasm and things. Well, like it's that. just not like uh, no. it's it's seen a well, you know medical history largely built upon patriarchal terms mm. has deemed it unimportant because you know um women don't need to orgasm mm. um in, in order to make babies. It's not important for the evolutionary kind of um, progress of the planet. Um, but this this article was titled um, something like um, the clitoris, um, half the world's doctors are, have a clitoris, why aren't we talking about it? Mm -hmm. I think the uh, title of the article was something like that. And so it kind of just made me get really kind of, I don't know, it's this constant torment that we talk about on Asian Bitches Down Under, the absolute crappiness of being a woman. And that is yet again another, you know, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> oh yeah there are like limitless um limitless reasons why it is um just so much harder to be a woman and uh yeah having a clitoris and having having that like kind of bodily such an important bodily um or sort of Function. part of our body mm -hmm. um being completely ignored apparently there's just like no historical kind of very um broad research focused research onto the clitoris mm -hmm. um other parts like the uterus and the cervix um that are pertaining to childbirth and child rearing they're way more studied but unfortunately the clitoris is like largely ignored yeah it's a pleasure gap why. you know we all know why it's largely ignored because the society expects that women shouldn't have pleasure there's also that culture I, I can't find a word. I'm losing my words now. I'm like vocabulary lacking at the moment that this the procedure where they do in the, um, where they cut the clearest off young. Oh, the uh, female genital mutilation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, mutilation, that's the word. Yeah, where they, you know, expect that girls shouldn't learn that kind of pleasure from young and, you know, it's all down to the suppression of, uh, female freedom and the female the, joy the, right? yeah, the choices that we have on our body yeah yeah i don't know where to move on from there but i definitely have a rant today um <laughs> i hate to fuss over what other women do honestly but jessica Rowe, <laughs> jessica Rowe on adam lau's cook off which is an sbs proof program that we watched on our weeknights after dinner or during dinner, whatever there was. Um, so it's like a cook show where Ed and Lau, if anyone doesn't know, he's one of the winner from MasterChef. MasterChef, yeah, a few years ago. ago. And he's it feels like decades now. Yeah, he's Malaysian Chinese. And it was such a hype after him. We see all these old POC cook and chefs coming out onto the screen. Anyway, so this show that he invites two guests, guests to um set within at the kitchen bench watching cook and there's always a theme of his ep each episode um that he would ask his guests to cook on the second uh, segment 
Anyway, so the theme of the episode that Jessica Roll was on, I, I don't even know why she was invited anyway, was stir fry. And Roll chose butter chicken, which is cooked from a packet. I, just, I was just thinking the audacity of a white guest who can access a POC's program and do whatever that she likes. Doesn't a cook according to the theme of the episode and saying that she can't cook a stir fry and then moves on to use the packet sauce, like a pre-packet, you know, that you can get those yeah. from supermarket. <laughs> butter chicken sauce to make butter chicken. I was just thinking, what the hell was the production team thinking? Yeah, right. Clearly see the abhorrent expression on Anna Lau's face. He was like frowning when he saw the packet, the packet sauce. Okay, so this is not the worst bit. The worst bit was when she said, when Adam Lau came over and helped her kind of like adding this and telling her that, oh, you can add this bit of extra thing to, you know, make it more flavorful or something like that. Mm-hmm. And to that, she said, can I take you home and you can live in my fridge? And I think Adam Lau ignored her and continued to do his cooking. Mm. I was just thinking the audacity of such an unfiltered statement or question to kind of, I don't know what she was trying to imply, but to me, if I want to interpret it, it almost sounds like she wants to enslave a person of color to work for her. Mm. I take you home and you can live in my fridge. It's mm. not even like, oh, can you please come home and help me out? It's like, yeah. live in my fridge. Yeah. It's also almost like treating him as a commodity. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know, when, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was looking forward to hearing your rant about this, Helen, because um, I usually, when we talk about racialized comments, mm. it, it kind of, it's always because I, you and I, we have such like severe, such microscopic lenses when it comes to interpreting the world, right? And we pick mm-hmm. up on things immediately. I have to say, when I heard you rant about this one comment that she made, I actually just thought my, 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 my reaction wasn't as strong as yours. I actually thought she probably would have said it to any, like, I'm not sure if it was completely racial, mm. like her comment. Like, I feel like, what, what Jessica Rose comment to Adam Lau for me feels like the kind of comment that typically all my life I have seen a man give a woman. Yeah. And so like I don't disregard what you're saying. There was some sort of strange power trip that she was sort of power dynamic um, yeah. that she kind of exhibited um, through <laughs> or the lack of awareness of on her part. Yeah. Which she exhibited uh, purely through her the way that she flippantly made that comment, right? And it was kind of like the way in which, I don't know, just um, white men often dismiss women in like very casual, seemingly casual but derogatory ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like, uh, like you said, it was almost like um, treating them in a way that it's it's a sense that um, you are um, a replaceable or like, a com- like you said, kind of a commodity or just like this service that I can call upon. Yes. easily because like I like the skills kind of thing right mm-hmm. um and and I know a lot of these like I just I'm, I'm just generally I don't, I don't want to be attacking on you know people but I guess like our show is just always full of attacking on people like attacking <laughs> people's comments or like behavior that we don't like 
but like a lot of um these kind of very high profile media personalities yeah uh, i guess she was a newsreader so she does have mm -hmm. skills yeah um i'm not gonna i i feel like i could come across as sounding dismissive no like um i totally get it you know newsreaders they have skills they have shit that they need to deal with you know it is definitely like not easy um however in saying that so many of the newsreaders that we have in australia to me helen they just seem like or a completely homogenous character yeah most of like them you are. Yeah, yeah all of that like jessica rowe sandra sully um tracy spicer you know all um lisa wilkinson all of these people samantha armitage um natalie bath chris bath natalie Barr and chris bath um they're all kind of like very meticulously polished manicured women who are you know never never seen outside the house with like unpolished you know nail polish um they're always beautifully put together and they've all had memoirs come out in the last what 10 5 10 years oh really and they've all struggled with anxiety they've all had depression like i'm not like i sound like i'm dismissing them um i'm not dismissing mental illness and all that i'm just like they're always given the same uh they're always given so much reverence and so much unmitigated kind of platform in order to share their griefs in a way that like sure they get judged i, I i'm sure I, I i'm sure they get hate mail and all that mm -hmm. but there's something about that that world that where i look at them and these are women who are allowed to be unskilled in the sense that like you know jessica rowe she felt comfortable enough you called it audacity she felt comfortable enough to go on this cooking show and admit that she's completely incapable what did she say did she i haven't watched it though but she said she can't cook a she can't fry. cook a stir fry yeah well she probably has nannies just like a lot of these news readers and all, yeah. all her public profile people um people i know personally who work in like parenting um advocacy platforms like i know this one person who i won't name who works for who is like a massive one of the biggest leaders in pushing for universal childcare here in Australia and she you know has the perfect family and all that she's always pushing for universal childcare i am not at all dismissing trying to dismiss you know what she's trying to advocate for completely i am supporting it over her political campaign however um like they she has a nanny she has a full time au pair mm. you know and so many of these women do and uh yeah these are women who have the kind of monetary material resources in order to say the kind of thing that she said so flippantly to adam you know mm -hmm. um yeah. and it just yeah i think it reminds me of uh was it not nanny mcphee why do i know mary poppins or some one of the movie that's like in mary poppins era or was it pygmalion my fair lady I can't remember which one, but I remember distinctively that in the first scene that where the the woman of the household, she's like a wife or some sort of a governor or something like that. She went to a she went on a street and right trying to protest protest for women's rights and holding like place a card and saying that uh, it's women's right to do this and that. And then she comes home. Uh, directing her housekeepers to do things and questioning her why she didn't look after the kids properly, mm. something like that. I think it's very similar. It hasn't really changed to that kind of power dynamics and the hierarchical structures to within the community of women, I think. Yeah. And 
I, I found that it was a bit racialized because specifically that she is on a Jessica Rowe was on a person of color's show. And in the previous episode that we watched so far up into the episode that had Jessica Rowe on it, they had guests of like refugee advocates, uh, refugee mm. advocate, um, immigrant um, lawyers, or just mostly people of color. And I found it really surprised that they had Jessica Rowe on it. And she couldn't, like, like there's a theme, okay? If the production, I actually think that was a fault at the production te team that right. couldn't maybe sort her out to be appear on another episode, which that she can perhaps cook something <laughs> rather than a packet from the packet sauce. Right. It was really funny. And so yeah. sad that um it also gives the power of the white guest that she has the power to do that can you ever imagine that if it's other way around the production team will probably stop even before the recording of the show saying that oh no you're not qualified to be on this yeah, show you're not qualified to be on the show because you're not you don't you're not doing according to what we want absolutely yeah, or, as a white person yeah. can oh yeah they can yeah. white people can get away with anything <sighs> yeah, totally. Um, and we have to be extraordinary in order to get on any half-decent show. Yeah. We have to be beyond extraordinary. We have to be exceptional in order to even get a spot in the most mediocre shows. Mm -hmm. But um, someone like Jessica Rowe, she gets by by her profile, right? Mm. She, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, TV, um, they are a, um, it's a, it's a business they need eyes on. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm guessing that they just got her on because like they knew that they would, you know, people would recognize her and then want to watch the show, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's just yeah, a numbers right. game, you know, yeah. it's just a numbers game. She, she, yeah. she, she can, she can um, draw in the crowds, I guess, so mm -hmm. to speak, as opposed to some unknown, you know? Mm -hmm. I, yeah. It's, it's the, it's kind of like the ultimate um, and essential and inevitable intersection of um capitalism and um everything else that it makes it harder for people of color to make their way through in society yeah. it's so depressing yeah um let's jump on to something else do you want to start to yeah so i um read a book this week um i um went to kino kunia uh, a few yeah. days ago and uh it's you know what five six weeks until christmas Mm -hmm. maybe six weeks yeah so and every year i say um i i will go and get my christmas shopping done before <laughs> literally before the 25th of december and i always fail so this year i decided not to be a failure and um so went shopping around the city which is i mean this sydney cbd it's it's so easy to shop in you know around town hall qvb everything is there mm -hmm. um didn't end up buying a lot, but I did. Um, I did re realize um, it's a re re realization of the joy of just shopping by myself. I haven't done that in a while, and it was absolutely blissful. Went to Muji, went to Kino, um, got a couple of books at Kino. Um, I had uh, when while I'm writing my book, um, one of my favorite writers, Katie Kitamura. I uh, sporadically every now and then I google her just to see if she's had a new you know profile or yeah. interview she's given 
Recently, she's given a, a short interview about her favourite books or the books that she is at least currently now reading. And one of them she suggested was a Italian author, a female Italian author who I'd never heard of. Her name is Natalia Ginsburg, G-I-N-Z-B-U-R-G. Uh, and uh, so I got a couple of her books. Um, I finished one, a very short novella called The Road into the City this week. And this book was written in 1986, it's translated a few years later, I believe, into English. But it's set in the 40s or 50s, I believe. And it's a very slim book. And the reason why I picked her up was because Katie Kinemura said that Nat Natalia Ginsburg writes with a lot of kind of like a sparseness and a pure lack of sentimentality, which which is which is largely why I'm so drawn to Katie Kinemura's book. Like, you know, when you love someone's writing, you want to know what they read, you know, because you want to know what they they are kind of the people they are inspired by. So I went to the source of, you know, what inspires Katie Kinemura. Natalia Ginsburg is one such female author. And the writing is so different to the writing oh, we kind okay. of get these days. Uh -huh. Um, I'd say um, her writing is closer to... 30 years ago, so... Yeah, the writing is closer to the style of, like, the Japanese authors you read, Helen. Oh, really? Like, the, the authors that. that... Yeah, the authors that write um, Breast and Eggs and, you know, um, All the Lovers in the Night, I believe, mm. um, that's come out recently by the same author. And it's just um, there's a total lack of detail. Like, all the sentences are very vague... It's just story-driven things. The sentences are just clearer. They're not, like, overcrowded with descriptions, mm -hmm. which is my absolute pet peeve. I cannot stand descriptive <laughs> writing. Like, just kill me. I, I Just kill me when, when it comes to descriptive writing. Just, like, it's like it's almost like um, someone is shoving you down your throat with food and you're just like, I can't take any more. Uh, that's how I feel. Um, with just overly descriptive writing, I just I cannot stand. Uh huh. Do you think it's because that it leaves no room for imagination? For That's you? precisely it. Yeah. That is precisely yeah. it, Helen. I was going to say if you were going to ask me that, uh -huh. I would have said exactly. There, there leaves absolutely no room for me to fill in the spaces that I mm -hmm. my mind wants to fill in and come in and you know a, a, appropriate this world for myself in my internal fantasy you know in my theater of the mind unique space it's almost like if it's overly descriptive it's almost like uh there's already a template for you in your mind that you don't have to and everyone imagines differently i think everyone will interpret a piece of writing differently is that what you're saying i think yeah I mean, in the past few years i've read works that are overly descriptive or works that are very opaque i think it both it depends the type of reader you are some people don't want to use their imaginations they just want to give it be given as it is probably yeah also i can't stand long books oh, like yeah, i think the longest book yeah. i i adored was um and this is a predictable recommendation is a hyana hanagara's hanya yanagara's um a little life which is what over 500 pages, 500 pages um, yeah. i would just go of... and see the play i think i would just go and see the play wait is there a play coming out yeah no not okay. in australia there's a play they, they oh my goodness oh my goodness yeah. oh <laughs> i just think um the best movie is no longer 
definitely no longer than two hours, but my favorite movie is probably like an hour and a half. Likewise, the best books are not no, no longer than 200 pages. Honestly, yeah. uh-huh. it's it just you can't drag out too long. It's I like, just can't, yeah, I, I cannot, I cannot, yeah. Um, but speaking of adaptations, I'm very excited. Probably the best piece of news I've had this week, and I'm very glad to have sh- talked about it with Helen already, mm-hmm. is that Flashman is in trouble <laughs> is, um, coming out in an FX slash Disney Plus series, I believe on the 19th or the 17th of November. Oh, really? And, um, well, that's very soon. And uh, Jesse Eisenberg is, um, is playing Toby Flashman. Flashman. Yeah, and Claire Danes is playing um, Rachel. I believe the name was Rachel, if I if I can recall. I mean, Helen and I, I loved this book. Um, it was probably it's probably one of the top ten books I've ever read. Oh, Flashman's really? in trouble. Okay. I'm obsessed with this book. It shifted something in my heart and in my mentality so fundamentally okay. that I just I, I'm really excited about this. Um, I'm really excited about this show. Um, I listened to an, um, a podcast, um, the long form podcast, recently with Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who is the uh, writer uh, of the novel, and she's also the showrunner of the show. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, she was ta- she was saying how her greatest fear is that nobody would watch it. Oh, I think because the 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 reception of the book was so huge. And everyone will have such a high expectation for the visual mm. um, presentation of this work. And then I'm actually worried that both of us have such a high expectation that we're going to feel Be disappointed. disappointed the first yeah, day. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that. I'm really disappointed at the cast of the man. I know, yeah. Okay, I don't, I don't really buy Jesse Eisenberg as um, a, short, a short Jewish man. A yeah. short, self-hating Jewish man, which is what Toby Flashman is. <laughs> I thought, um, well, who, who, what was some Helen saying, and I exchanged um, texts about who could play Toby Flashman? Jo- much Jonah, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill, but um, I don't know if Jonah Hill Adam is a Jewish. Sandler. <laughs> Adam Sandler. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I was. We were both thinking, who's short and Jewish in Hollywood? Yeah, but I also feel like this character should have like black curly hair yeah exactly so if you haven't that's a blonde should have black yeah well jesse eisenberg does have dark black hair before we go on before we keep going just uh, people who haven't read the book the reason why i stress the short part is because it's a huge part of um toby flashman's identity he like he spends a lot of the book talking talking about about how shit it is yeah how shit it is that he's so short so it's just part of the book um Claire Danes as um, Rachel, I don't know. I feel like... Um, well, her appearance in the novel wasn't a lot. So I feel like there's just any pretty much basic blonde white woman. Can yeah, I mean, so up. many people could have played Rachel. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I can I can see her as like an alpha, alpha female, I know. Mm-hmm. Very tough. Um, but yeah, that comes out next week and I am... I'm I'm hungry for it, man. I'm. It makes me want to read read the book. Actually, it, it, I I made my partner yeah. read it when when I finished it. It just it, it completely so it killed me. That book killed me. It 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 really struck a huge core 
struck something. It, it like sent earthquakes through my soul. That book. Mm. Oh. <laughs> because we rarely, you rarely read a female writer writing from the perspective of a man who、mm. beat a man. Yeah, alpha beta, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and somehow that I don't know how other people perceive this work, but I thought it was a little bit re- revolutionary. I think. Yeah, a bit different to what else, what other things that we've read. Yeah, yeah, and again, this is like a a really long book. I think it's too long, like it's over three hundred and fifty pages, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it, it it got it was really interesting at the first like first half, and then the second half it just drags on, just drags、yeah. on, and you feel like oh, there's no end to it. What's gonna happen? Can they just wrap it up? And at the end, they just. Finish unexpectedly. There's no proper ending to it. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I thought、mm-hmm. the the ending is it really leaves you it leaves、me. you wonder what they're gonna do, you know? Or yeah, it's just that sometimes that you predict what's gonna happen. You didn't just didn't have a proper conclusion. And I think this book really kind of, if I really reflect on it, um, it it, it like the best books, it makes it confronts you. In the best possible way, it makes you reflect on your own kind of relationship.、Um, yeah, and also your blind spots, I guess. And it kind、mm-hmm. of startled me in the sense that you know, when I, I truly believe the reason why、um, so many people love Sally Rooney's books is because they relate to it, right?、Mm-hmm. Like most readers are white, they're middle class, they're females, they're university educated. Sally Rooney is all those things. Yeah,、uh, her characters are all those things, most、yeah. of them,、um, and they relate to it. And I was quite shocked, right, that I found myself relating to Rachel, even though I'm not rich, I'm not、no. white, I'm not like an alpha woman, you know, like and but but everything about Rachel I related to, and I was quite like that scared me, that frightened me in a way that only the best books can. It can like the best books somehow manage to. Transcend race, politics, class, background—you know—and I saw myself in Rachel,、um, and it was just so startling to see that all these, like, no matter how beautiful you may be, how no matter how many kids you have, no matter how fulfilled you may look on the outside, you can still have these terrible,、um, deeply <laughs> unfixable malaise, malaise, malaises. Yeah, that just, the life is to a mess. <laughs> yeah, it's、um, it's so. It's just so wonderful. I just, I just love that book so much.、Yeah. I'm just gonna say it's it's when I say it's a wonderful book, it's not a happy read. It's so、mm-hmm. depressing. Yeah, but it also feels like at the end the readers of this Flashman is in trouble. It was to woman. I I don't know what the writer the author is trying to convey. Sort of a message trying to. Oh, should the female readers trying to reflect on our what we do, because we don't see a lot of men out there reading novels that is centering on female characters or the hardship that the female character, or just the marriage, right? Yeah, just the marriage. Yeah, men are always writing about like true crime or genre fiction. I know. That's why men would never reflect on their. Inability <laughs> to maintain a proper relationship because they never read books or watch yeah, movies about like, relationships. Like、yeah. Marriage story, 
Yeah, Marriage Story. Oh my god, that was depressing. <laughs> That's you know, I don't think any guys will not a lot of guys will watch that sort of. Yeah, I'm not sure about. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you. The only men I know who have re- who have spent time engaging with that movie is gay are gay men. Mm. Yeah, okay. and my well, gay, I, my gay, like on the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, men are not asked to do all that emotional and psychological and spiritual labor. I guess is mm. what you'd call it, labor and like intellectual yeah. thinking. They, they like mm. men are mm. not have never been asked to do intellectual, um, rigorous intellectual mm. dialogues and debate around family making they just they find someone that they like who they think will be responsible and um who will take care of the kids mm-hmm. they um they give yeah. them a ring so that they make sure that they the, these women don't run away to someone else you know they throw them a lavish wedding so that for one day a woman can be completely you know set her own terms and be beautiful and take a million pictures and spend half a year's salary just for this one day and then for the rest of the life he can you know make sure he can make sure that this woman will do all that kind of um caring and adjudicating of (sighs) kind of like roles and duties Mm. assigning things and you know like uh, i I wish i was a man every day i wish i was a man (laughs) um i I was a man i would have been married ages ago i would have got married in my 20s if i found some (laughs) decent woman to you know bear my children yeah (laughs) um and then i can write all my books without any kind of and then my wife would probably bring me sandwiches and (laughs) food and my work would be taken seriously um and i would have the gravitas that's what happened to society for male writers yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, for so long in my life i feel like um yeah every decision i've made in my life has been decided because of my kind of subject matter my identity as a woman so um unfortunately um and the things i've run away from are things that i've deliberately chosen because i know the consequences of jumping into things as a woman you know and what is expected of me yeah. and but just just going back to what you said um marriage story uh one of my best friends he hates um adam driver oh, <laughs> and okay. uh just yeah uh, i don't know why i mentioned that is it random? specifically that character in that movie? Or, or oh, the, yeah, or it's very, like, they, they, I think they didn't really like the movie because it was like very screamy and Adam Driver is like, I think it's a very real movie. I think uh, the movie. The real movie, and everyone said that the Adam Driver's character is such a C-U-N-T, and you think about it, that's practically. Every man we know. <laughs> yeah, or at least like every theatre maker. That's probably on the planet, um, as he is in the in the yeah. Uh, if you are married to a, uh, I, I think um, the maker. in the artist world, uh, if you're also married to an artist and you're a female artist, there's no hope for you. <laughs> such a Your husband will God. always be taken more seriously, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, um, men, I think straight men are not asked to, to do a lot of the inter inter intra inter and intrapersonal. Uh, relationship building yeah on the reflection of what they do within a relationship yeah this is like i have a love and hate relationship with flashman is in trouble because i know the work is brilliant but at the same time i don't know it it turns out you know 
more female readers are reading this work and we're coming back to try to kind of vicariously think about oh if i'm that woman should i treat the men a little bit nicer because the men have their own hardship as well but the fact is if you're really comparing the shittiness that we all go through in life it's really hard to compare i know but are you saying that taffy broad and certain acne um are you saying that she sympathized with toby too much in her book is that what you're saying well that's how i how i how that's how I you read it yeah how i personally will read it i love that i love that because yeah. we read differently so i read it differently i read it as a uh, a complete kind of opi opius um mm -hmm. overture i say i should say um to rachel flashman i'd say that the the book completely made me sympathize with her despite mm -hmm. the fact that we do spend about three two-thirds of the book with toby yeah i know yeah, exactly. yeah i know yeah but at the end it's it's rachel who i completely kind of um grieve for i don't i don't mm -hmm. i don't grieve for toby at all like mm -hmm. even though i spent time with him and i think that's why um like yes we are in toby's mind because you know we're following him throughout the book but because there's something about the fact that um it is a female author who has constructed this male figure mm -hmm. and at the end of the day uh, i found it such a such a mournful feminist text mm -hmm. because like i i related to rachel so much mm -hmm. in in such a kind of spiritual emotional truth you know mm -hmm. but it's interesting i love that we read differently you know and that's ultimately what makes great uh, a great text that every everyone comes everyone to interpret things yes yeah through their own lens and i just want to go back to just one more thing to round up this session um talking about you know men not being asked to do the intrapersonal mm -hmm. labor and all that um i think when they do do a little bit of it i know we always complain about how you know we're not treated <laughs> fairly but when they do it's like they get the biggest round of applause um <laughs> they saw a party for <laughs> yeah exactly so so like i you know how i'm kind of obsessed with hamish blake's podcast how other days. <laughs> yeah we just spoke about it <laughs> i know yeah um so the latest <laughs> the latest episode dropped today and it's with this guy i've never heard of his name is hugh van cullenberg mm -hmm. he's apparently the founder of the resilience resilience project mm -hmm. which is I, I i casually i casually googled him he's kind of like Brene Brown slash Elizabeth Gilbert slash like every other white um, middle class, uh, very attractive looking, mm -hmm. um, this generation's Tony Robbins kind of thing, like a self-help person. Mm. Um, I mean, when I heard the name Resilience Project, I, I just roll my eyes, you know? Yeah. Clearly it's not for someone like you and I, for white people. Um, we don't need a fucking project to tell us to build our resilience. We yeah, um, how about be our... part of a migrant oh. family? Yeah, just like grow up migrants and then you'll know how it is to be resilient. How about that? Yeah. Anyway, um, and he said, he was talking about how he's, um, he was kind of um, hesitant, like kind of frightened and tentative about being a father because his wife's father, so his father-in-law was mm. one year in the past a uh, father of the year like he was oh, okay. he had been given the father of the year award yeah. Yeah. so he was kind of intimidated which i get like yeah right um i get it um but then he said something like um oh um, after we had our first baby my father-in-law came down and looked at me and he patted me on the back and said how are you guys going and then hamish blake was like oh 
what a legend. Oh, no wonder he's the father of the year. Like, it's so great that he's just, like, still looking after you guys. Yeah, I'm like, because he asked you how you're going? Like, that's God. literally what every this, mother does. That's a question. My that is question literally what every woman does day, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Just the, the minimal amount that the society expects a man to do as a Yeah, father. and he gets a fucking Nobel Prize for it. I know. <laughs> I love it. I just, this world just constantly confounds me. It breaks my heart, but then, you know, it builds it up again by, you know, conversations with like-minded people like Helen and, <laughs> and babies. Babies are fun. Babies are innocent and they're fun and they're cute. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to draw everyone's attention a little bit different. Um, something a bit depressive about one. Yeah, of- we're going to take a 180 turn here. Yeah, a, a, a non-fiction. But important. That I've been reading this week. It's called Daughters of do I oh, should I have looked up the pronunciation of this word? Daughters of Durga. Durga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a Hindu goddess. Uh, she's got multiple hands. I don't have the book in front of me. It's downstairs, and she writes a lion. The book cover is brilliant, very vibrant, very colorful, and I love it. By Dr. Manjula Dada O'Connor. So this is a book about uh, exploration. She's a psych psychiatrist. Yeah, I psychiatrist. Think, mm-hmm. Yeah, psychiatrist. Um, so it's a book about explorations on the reasons behind domestic violence in South Asian communities in Australia. Um, she talks about uh, a lot of data-based um, stories. Um, she talks about a relationship with a family, and there's a couple of turns that I actually quite like how she framed it. That I never had the word. Never thought about using the word to frame that kind of behavior. Yeah, what is it? For example, she talks about benevolent patriarchy, a well-meaning control, which is accepted by a traditional society where that a lot of uh, male figure, um, most likely the father figure of the family, decides everything, um, chooses where the family should live or chooses how he makes his income and just like takes up upon all the burdens as we perceive when we were younger that we think that it is the right thing to do but it is also patriarchal because none no other family members get to say you know agree that they don't like this kind of decision it's always considered it's as the best interest of the family Mm. yeah i think that happens a lot with a lot of immigrant family well at least um i don't want to you know use our family as a um, example but i do see a lot of families that it seems like it's always that the father makes the decision of moving away or um taking upon that kind of burden at the same time you i don't know if it's sacrifice or not but i feel like it's a very conflictual turn that um the men are expected to do that as well which placed them uh, on a lot of pressure yeah um on on the other hand that women are forced to value family over their own independence or career you know like women are never considered as an autonomy being there in south asian communities that women are considered they're dependent from 
on their birth, they're dependent on their father. When they're married, they're dependent on their husband. And if their husband passed away, they're dependent on their son. Mm. They're always attached to their male family member, which um, she quoted quite um it, it's really well said here i'm gonna quote she said that um does society or indeed the family allow woman independent choice or are those values the result of enforced oppression control and submissive yeah she talks about colonization which placed a lot more um values on male labor which in turn that the female are driven out of labor market and devalues the work that women do and the centerpiece of her work is talking about dowry is that how mm-hmm. you it? yeah dowry which is the money that the bride's mem- bride's family need to prepare when they're getting married to the groom and apparently um for indian culture or southeast uh, South Asian cultures that the groom's family can demand the price of the dowry, um, gives him money, jewelry, saris, white goods, cars, or even properties. Um, the, also, on top of that, is the expenses of the couple's ceremonies leading up to the actual wedding. Apparently, there's like four ceremonies that they mm. go through, which is really like a mind blowing for me because I thought that the ones in Taiwan was already so, you know, it's kind of, I can't, I can't um, process that kind of capacity of efforts that you need to go through. I was just wondering whether or not that India have like event managers will make so much money out of it. Yeah. 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 Um, so in terms of saying dowry, um the traditional idea is that you kind of prepare your daughter marry into the husband's family because once she's married she's not longer working she's looking after the husband and his family so there's no a capacity for her to generate income so they need to kind of prepare her to take some assets over across to the other family to me it's like almost seen as like a trade of exchange and patriarchy holds the power because a heterosexual relationship in terms of dowry is that all the family are expecting to have sons because you know one marriage you're going to receive that much amount of assets Mm. and also that um i don't know if you heard but in chinese there's a turn as in daughters are poor investments they require expensive diaries or they won't be married off or if they don't have prepared enough diary diary that um, she's going to be treated poorly at the husband's home Mm. kind of like almost it, it is creating a stigma that females are worthless and results in a lot of female infanticides as well. That yeah. is the fact, you know, in a lot of societies. Yeah. And um, I'm looking back into, you know, my own marriage that our parents didn't, they, they prepared the so-called, they don't call it dowry, but they prepare kind, kind of like a sort of a savings for us when we were younger. But I've heard that in Taiwan, it still happens a lot in the southern rural areas of Taiwan that 
they have to exhibit to the wedding guests, you know, the dowries. But in Taiwan society, I don't know if it's the same with all other Chinese speaking um, societies.、Mm. The groom's family need to prepare money as well,、mm. as in to pay the bride's family, specifically pay bride's、uh, parents for thanking them raising their daughter. Really,、so、it's like a exchange of money, and some people are saying, like contemporary people are saying that it's almost like you're selling your daughter. So、yeah. it's very rarely people do it now, but it still happens.、Mm. Yeah. And the books talks about a lot of stories about Indian women who married、uh, non-resident Indian men, who are the ones who are living in Australia or US or UK,、mm. the ones who doesn't reside in India, and they were abused, deceived, or robbed of all their assets. And there's because they have this myth about marrying into Western country for an expectation of a better life. Yeah.、Um, But unfortunately, it's it doesn't always happen. You know, you have a very well educated woman, Indian woman, who might have moved herself up onto management level, but because of the scrutiny of the society, that once she reaches thirty and she's not married off, her parents start getting anxious. They want to quickly marry her off, and usually will come down to a very so-called a bad deal because she end up being abused. You know.、Mm. Without any her family support in Australia or anywhere else that's outside of India, yeah. So,、um, hopefully, of what Dr. Jata or Connor is doing, you know, raising this kind of issue that the community can raise awareness and start opening up this conversation to talk about this issue.、Um, yeah, because in the space of DV, a lot of these women go invisible. Yeah, especially you know because it's there's highly stigmatized that you don't talk about your family affair in a lot of Asian community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I I just find to- I just find toxic. I think、um, the lack of I mean I get it. I I understand that some people believe that private matters belong in、mm-hmm. you know behind closed doors and all that. But I I don't know. I just I will. When it's about life and death, you know. I mean, obviously, yes. Die from yes. this, yeah. Yes, absolutely. But we, you and I, Helen, we grew up in、um, a culture which still exists today,、uh, mm. where you don't disclose your. I guess you don't hang. What's the term? What the, What do the Aussies say? Don't don't, don't your don't air your dirty, dirty laundry. Yeah, dirty laundry. Yeah, yeah. yeah I.、Uh, It breaks my heart because I actually don't see a way this could ever change. I, I, how do you convince the whole? How do you get people to talk about?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, these things. That's right. I think part of the what the the author is doing is that she's trying to normalize about talking about these issues to bring the awareness into the community. But what I found a little bit, I, I'm not quite sure if. I'm irritated or uncomfortable. I can't find、mm-hmm. the right word to explain how I feel. Is that a lot of these、um, books that you know you talk about the experience of victim survivors? There's not much,、um, or perhaps I haven't got into it because only halfway through the book. They haven't got into things that men can actually do. You know, you、right. all, the problem lies within the men. Yeah. Compromise within the patriarchy. So how,、yeah. we, apart from we 
become aware of this um, problem exists in the society, the part that we encourage the victim survivors to come out and talk about it, what else should we be doing in the society to change the behaviours of the perpetrators? I think that's the major thing to actually change the whole system. Yeah. And that's the next step that I feel that in this whole issue we haven't managed to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, it doesn't seem to be a barrier that has been broached or like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a hurdle that's been crossed, I suppose. And I guess conversely, that's why I'm so interested in interested in conversations like the one we had about how do we get more men to talk about in to get more involved and to have more initiative in mm-hmm. trying to come to the table with like ways of managing intra and interpersonal relationships you know mm-hmm. they seem yeah. to always be the ones that are being dragged into the conversation mm-hmm. um and uh it just seems like such a norm it seems like such a norm that you know they're not expected to do these things and i think that's why I mean, just to close off this whole, you know, first half of our pod, that's why I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with Hamish Blake's dad podcast is because, like, <laughs> um, he his, his audience is, like, um, bearded, hipster white guys who live in Sydney and um, have tech jobs or they're lawyers or and they wear caps. <laughs> yeah, buys, like, $5 lattes every day and they're, you know, they're funny they probably went to grammar or some, you know, not grammar, or they probably went to a Cranbrook or they're like, or just, you know, overall nice guys. Um, and that is like the demographic I want nothing to do, right? Mm. However, that's the demographic that are going to be controlling our laws in 20 years' mm. time. They're going yeah. to be the people running our councils. They're going to be the ones writing books. They're the ones in control. So, like, I, I really the kind power of, of the system. And the exactly. System. So, like, I hate, um, I don't like hamish blake's demographic because they're not they're not people i he doesn't speak to me Mm -hmm. you know he doesn't speak to me i'm not of that cohort however i feel like it's great that he is opening up this podcast and a chance for those kind of men to say to take a step back and say hey this guy who i look up to hamish blake he's handsome he's cool he's into dadding um he's like talking about what it means to be a dad and he wants to be more involved and he's giving me tips like Maybe I can talk to my friends about it now because this guy I look up to is doing it. You know, I think that's why I'm like, you know, even though I have nothing for Hamish Blake, I kind of am like in the background, slowly, very gently, like golf clapping him for this project. <laughs> yeah, at least he's slowly moving into the right direction. Or yeah, I think I feel like it. I feel like it. Yeah, I'm commending him for his like, I guess, intentions. Mm, yeah. Okay, let's take a break, and when we come back, we're gonna extend our conversation about parenting. <laughs> We're just obsessed. We're obsessed. <laughs> Okay, so we're back. Um, this week, we want to delve in continually <laughs> into the issues of parenting because Jess somehow saw this YouTube clip and she sent it to me and asked me to kind of evaluate on our parents and myself. Oh, no, I said, I said, par- I said evaluate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Although, although I, I guess but that's the that's the test that you're supposed to evaluate your your parents. parents. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what we're talking about, guys, is the school of life's twelve questions to evaluate your parents. Now, if you haven't heard of it, we have mentioned it several times in our podcast in the past. The school of life is, of course, Elaine de Botton's baby from maybe five ten years ago, and basically it's like a social adult education platform where like philosophical questions are asked you know um and what he does is you know he has they run workshops so like live in-person workshops about stuff like how to improve your sex life or like um how to be a more ethical employer or um how to you know like this one how to become a better parent or something like really kind of life questions and i i've really appreciated elaine de botton's books um, I think I've read a one. I read one about uh, like Elaine de Botton. I got into him through, I think, a few years ago. Um, the architecture of happiness. Um, uh, um, what were the other books? He had feels. He's kind of like a pop culture guide. Um, he had a book about Schopenhauer and what he can teach you about love. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate what Elaine de Botton has given us. I really do. Um, and our brother is a big fan of his fiction book. Um, what's his fiction book called? I read it a few times, but I've forgotten about Notes on Love or something. No, I you think I have it behind me. That's not the wait, wait, book. I have it behind me. Um, not my just, type of genre. Oh, <laughs> uh, the course of love. There it is. Yeah. It's behind me. It's behind me. If you can see uh-huh. it on my bookshelf, sitting next to Joan Didion. Um, the book of love, the course of love, sorry. And, um, so this video is basically a four-minute four video, four mm-hmm. minutes about um, going through some of the questions such as, like, what makes a good parent? And I think that that's, a, that's something I feel like a lot, a lot of people don't ask themselves because it's such a – it's so, like, so much about grief, trauma, background, who we are as people are, are kind of melded with, you know, our relationship to our parents and how they treated us as kids. Yeah. And um, at the beginning, the first half of the video is like it asks, they have a, like a sort of um, questions, casual questions they throw around like um, how to check if you're a good parent, if your parent adores their child, mm-hmm. if you are attuned to your parent, if you are listening to them, if you are not envious of your child, mm-hmm. um, if you're on top of your issues, you know, like you don't, you don't have something nibbling at you and then you let you let it out on your child mm. um another one is if you know your boundaries you know and know know about boundaries also so not being f- fearful of being hated when you know that your child is doing something that you know you know that they're putting their lives at risk you would be like willing to step in and be okay to say hey that's not on mm. and um also be willing to be boring and predictable, you know, um, apparently uh, a secure base from which the world can, the child can explore the world is mm-hmm. very important. And then there's 12 questions, 12 questions to ask whether or your parents, um, you know, did a good job and you score it out of 10. Helen, do you want to take us through the 12 questions? I have it here in front of me. Oh, um, <clears throat> 12 questions are the first one, uh, let me see, I'm just going to go through the video. I think the video I have about Oh, I have it in front of me, so I'll kick it off. Yep. Um, did my parent make me feel deeply loved and wanted? <laughs> I'm laughing. Question two. 
So you have to score, score, score out of score 10 out of 10, how listeners yeah. want to do. You score out of a 10 for each question. Like from 1 to 10, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Like the first question is that uh, my parent made me feel deeply loved and wanted. And then the second one, my parent was highly, often highly attuned to what I actually felt. Mm-hmm. And the third one is was my parent was able to tolerate a what's the word there? I can't really see it. Degree of innocence. Yeah, degree of innocence and disobedience. Innocent disobedience. Yeah. yeah. Um, was my my parent was were they authentically happy about my success? Mm-hmm. And the next one is uh, my parents lacked sadistic impulses. I guess it's just like no physical punishment is that what you um, mean i don't really know about that um oh, like, were my parents did they yeah did my parents lack lack sadistic impulses i mm-hmm. guess like like they don't like they have up? self-control yeah that's another way of putting it or like they were did they like i think a lot of people um struggle with addiction so did they have uh, any kind of addictive uh, tendencies maybe is another way to put that no. the next one was um did my parents avoid imposing too many of their own issues on to me i don't know how to I, I think this one's very complicated i like this one i, I like this one i like this one yeah because i have <laughs> a lot of i know you do i know you do you say like you're fat when you're not which is so like think about think about how that's going to affect your daughter <laughs> Uh, always telling helen to get therapy by the way (laughs) um what's the next one um my parents didn't demand to be admired Mm. which i really love yeah and i yeah i really like that i I can i i i'm i'm really happy to say that nobody in my life is nobody i've ever welcomed into my life and into my heart has been someone who's demanded to be admired. I can't uh, like yeah, who you can't stand that. Those I know who 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 does that. Like who demands to be admired? That's gross. A Probably me mind. actually. Or, I, I, people have actually had to put up with me and my desire and <laughs> my was, demand to be validated. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The next one is wasn't too exciting. I don't know how to answer that question. But why, My parent that? wasn't too exciting. Was I mean, you saying that yeah. your parents are parents boring. boring? Yeah. Boring. <laughs> um, the next one is knew how to play. <laughs> that kind of like contradicts the previous question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I think um, the previous one, my parent wasn't too exciting, I think meant like um, they had rules and boundaries oh okay kind of thing follows by the the next one and you can yeah have boundaries that's true and you can i think you can be playful but also have boundaries you know Mm. like the best teachers yeah you play they give you freedom but also they have boundaries and you respect them but i also found it's quite complicated with the statement have boundaries as in the parents has boundaries to stop what you should be doing that will endanger your life but should they are you supposed to expect your parents have boundaries accessing your own personal lives as well? Because I don't see a lot of Asian parents. Now I'm general, overly generalizing again because I'm learning from, I'm saying it from my own life experience as in parents, there are parents that would always intervene their kid's life. Absolutely. What about the, the boundaries on there? Yeah, because no. they, they also were taught that was the way to be a parent. 
Yeah. You yeah. show your love through intervention, mm-hmm. which I, I just like, oh, I've always, I've always admired. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I think obviously I'm biased because they're my parents. I think there is no, there will never be anyone who I look up to more than my mum and dad, period. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I do have always felt a tingle of admiration for those. And they've always been white, white parents who are like, just let their children be. I know. I, I just, I just I mean, cannot. I like something behind just, our mind that honestly we it astonishes up. me. Yeah, that when we that, see that, our white friends' parents. Yeah, that they don't like. They let them do what they want, and they respect them as whole human beings, and they don't, you know, put like six p.m. curfews on them. You know, like they <laughs> trust them. I think that's something that I really. Just, oh, I just, I, I grieve for the fact that, you know, I love my parents, but I grieve for the fact that I wasn't, wasn't um, given didn't have that, that liberty. I didn't have that liberty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I, I have I to mean, say it is a very racial thing. Yeah. It's, I have not, yeah. Um, I, I, I can count on maybe just one hand, the number of Asian parents who have given their children the liberty that I've seen most white parents give their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's specifically for immigrant parents. Yeah, um, and you get it. Like, if you're a white person listening to this now, the thing is, like, I'm glad Helen put this out. Like, you, I get it. I get why immigrant parents do that. They've given up their entire lives back mm-hmm. home and everything that they know to move to a country where they don't necessarily know the language. Like, of course, they're they're more invested in their pe- their children. Yeah, the, the children become children. yeah more than all the aspects of their lives outside of parenthood added up, you know? So Mm -hmm. you have to come, you have to understand why, you have to sympathise and understand exactly why they are the way they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The next question is tolerant dissent. Yeah, so were your parents able to tolerate dissent? (laughs) I love that. I love that because I think our parents were totally. (laughs) Okay, that's so funny. Pardon? That's so funny that we disagree on so many things. Really? Oh well, well, like to a degree. As in, when I when I say when I saw the word dissent, I thought political dissent. So like, um, my parents and I share very different political values, and they love me regardless. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. What What do you mean when you? I was thinking about more. Um, I mean, our for for me, how I would score our parents is that um, I'm gonna be quite blunt here. I'm. I will score them a pass market mark, but I wouldn't put them a really high mark is because there are still a lot of different things that I see so differently compared to our parents. Uh, for example, the value of family, the value of marriage, yeah, the you know, the queer community, I think there's still very hard topic to talk to our parents about it. I think Yeah, but okay, well, there are things I want to say, but I think Helen just go get therapy. <laughs> there, you like I, I feel like you. I think I'll just talk about my own experience. Mm-hmm. The reason why I think I I I like Helen just scored gave a score to her own experience with you know oh, our parents. Perfect. Yeah. My experience. I I told Helen before I scored our parents nine point six nine point seven, and it's I think um I have come to a place. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm in my mid-30s now and um, all through my life up until I'd say like later 20s um, and I spent a lot of my 20s um, and and my teenage years 
um, absolutely, like you could not find someone who had more hatred in their heart. I had so much hatred and anger built against my parents. It like killed me. It killed my heart. But thankfully, after 10 years of therapy, <laughs> 10 years, such a big 10 years of consistent therapy, thank you, therapy, um, <laughs> I've come to a place to accept my parents and, mm. you know, like, and love them. Um, I know acceptance and love and acceptance are different things. Andrew Solomon speaks about this beautifully. Mm. Um, but somehow it's miraculous that I've come to a place where all of those things that you say, Yes, you share different values, you know, to your parents. You want you 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 hold resentment still for them, for you know having different ideologies to you. All of those things wash away to me because I have like I've I've learned through therapy, and thank God I had a great therapist who has taught me to see things from my my parents' perspective mm-hmm. and yeah, to yeah, and that. and it's just like it's such a beautiful thing um, to to no longer hold so much resentment mm-hmm. and I'm to know, so much, yeah. I, I don't hold, hold resentment as in I'm trying to answer the question <laughs> rationally as it asked. So that's why uh, how I scored our parents like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, the final question is, took an interest in my small joys and pains. Mm. Did your parents take a small interest, took yeah. an interest in your small joys and pains? Now, yeah. I how do you feel about those 12 questions what do you reckon um I don't know how how can you even determine good or bad parenting I feel like that the luxury to do all this depends on your capacity to provide enough for your family like to go beyond the means of survival so you don't need to worry about like financial instabilities safety of your family then you can do all those things to meet the needs of your kids um and also does this so-called test work with migrants i mean the complete exactly dealing with a lot of migrant issues like for example the our parents anxieties when they first arrive in the foreign land they have to consider about the work availability they have to worry about their residence status they have to worry about um, racial abuse uh, mm. systemically discriminations and they also have to be concerned about their own parents back at their home homeland um, how do you have the mental capacity to meet those needs yeah exactly <laughs> I cannot exactly. imagine that's also, why that I'm saying that I don't resent my parents for not scoring high enough and that doesn't make them a bad parent. Yeah, yeah, I get, I no. get what you're saying. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's beautifully said. Yeah. Also, um, when you talk about all those things that our parents went through, I just think mm. it's um, absolutely, it breaks my heart to think that they suppressed all of that. Like, I don't know any, I can't remember yeah. one fight that my parents had or like I've, I've never seen, I don't remember one time seeing my mum or dad upset. Like they, they're like the king and queen of repressed emotions. <laughs> I have no idea how they managed to do that. It's so funny that we're six years apart and we've seen so many different things. I know because Helen, um, Helen was like eleven or twelve when she came to Australia. I was and six years younger. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I don't remember anything at all. I don't ever remember my parents. Yeah, like showing any kind of turmoil at all. Mm -mm. I've seen worse when we were back in Taiwan. Yeah, right. It's pretty bad. I guess that's why we score differently to our parents, even though that we came out of from the same vagina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love um, that. It's it's so interesting. 
Yeah. That's what I'm saying that what who decides this like feel and scoring high yeah. as our good parents is like is it like a western clinician to decide and you well, also have to consider yeah. the power dynamics again to determine these traits it really follows to the luxury of the and also the privilege to meet all those needs for your kids isn't it Yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And it also like the the one that says, um, "Did my parents uh, were they on top of things?" Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what if your parent was like raped in a wartime? You know, I know. Like, what you expect them to get over it? Like, yeah, like it's, it kind of this. Yeah, this 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 questionnaire assumes that um, everyone your parents your started off managed, life yeah. in a very good sense. Yeah, or has yeah. managed to have the resources to overcome their past mm-hmm. past griefs. Yeah. Which, you know, we all know a lot of people don't, you know. Mm-hmm. And also therapy is just like a very new thing, right? Like exactly. 20, 30 years ago, I feel like not having getting therapy wasn't such a mainstream resource. Mm-hmm. I feel like people are becoming more aware about mental illness and, you know, mental health. Um, this is a very contemporary lens, This the, these 12 question checklists. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate it for what it is because in the sense that it opens up questions about you know and it gives people a platform to talk about what a good parent looks like and that can only be a good thing like Mm -hmm. i i wish they had templates like for this for like um what does a good um what does a good daughter look like or not not a good daughter sorry scrap that what does a good um partner look like you Mm -hmm. know or like any other role what does a good friend look like Mm -hmm. um because these things are always like important to talk about and mm-hmm. it's like always women who are talking about these things because women yeah, are again. the ones who are carrying these <laughs> emotional I know. responsibilities, right? It's very tiring, yeah. And I have to say before we kind of um, move on to other things or wrap up, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to say that I think I'm changing my mind about how do we, like in my mind, uh, you know, because Helen, you have been kind of, since I was six, 17 cause, or 17, I think my, my first nephew, Helen's son, was born when I was 17 or 18. And, like, I've always had, throughout my adult life, I've always seen Helen almost, like, um, as an example of mother, right, motherhood. And, <laughs> and I've seen a whole, like, a whole human being grow into a whole oh, human yeah. being. Like, Luke, you know, earlier this week we saw him perform in a great concert by himself and it was really emotional for me to see someone who I've, seen like as a freaking tiny little baby and like suddenly become this professional you know beautiful <laughs> handsome young man who was just like breaking every girl's heart <laughs> and boys um, yeah and boys sorry of course um and um i think um i used to always say helen and sean are, must be great parents because they're not? Are such wonderful <laughs> Like, cause I see, I see Helen's son and I'm like, he is literally the epitome of the most beautiful, kind-hearted human I've ever met. So I just thought, well, immediately I thought, well, Helen and Sean must be great parents. No, we're not. Um, but, but, but maybe, maybe that's not the, be- like, I'm not saying you're not the great parents, but I'm saying that can't be the metric upon which we hmm. measure parents that you can't just look at the child and say, of oh, it's all the parents. You know, yeah. yeah. Just, Obviously, just because, because if you did, yeah. then like you would blame, you know, serial killers. Uh, you would blame their parents, parents or like you would yeah. blame bad, bad. You would blame 
um, you would say you would say to a criminal, "Oh, they had bad parents," which mm -hmm. which you know is like statistically and scientifically very wrong. Mm -hmm. Like we know from Andrew Solomon's book, "Far from the Tree," that ninety nine percent of criminals, their parents were not criminals. You know, yeah, uh, don't don't quote me on that. But he's you know yeah he there's a chapter in this book where he interviews yeah, parents of criminals. Yeah. And yeah, most most of these kids who did commit crime, they their parents were not, you know, mm. so I think this test is almost it's most as a guideline for parents or parents to be or people who wants to be parents to look through how you can parents when you have kids of your own. Mm. Um, it's almost like yeah it is a guideline for you to kind of study or navigate or i don't know to talk to yourself or your partner or even if you see your yeah. partner how the sort of traits that your partner exhibit whether or not he or she or they can become a good parent depending yeah. on the traits yeah. i think that's really beautiful what you said there mm. yeah because yeah. i feel like um i'm personally very interested in how um uh people's relationship to their spouse to their partners change after they become parents and mm -hmm. the, the ways yeah yeah and the different ways you parent two people from yeah, two very different families have, yeah, yeah have different values and different ways of parenting and okay. wouldn't it be funny just as a side note wouldn't it be funny if like you took these checklists and you had it in a notebook and you wrote it down and you were like every year you would Ask your <laughs> son. You would, yeah, you would kind of check. Ask hey, Bobby. Yeah, every, every year. Hey, Bobby. So now you're four. Do I make you feel loved and deeply wanted? Please and answer then, all these questions because yeah. I have to do a parent report. Yeah, for a parent report. Just like in universities, they have evaluations. Oh my God, yeah, for the te teaching staff. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, Bobby. Do I lack statistic impulses? <laughs> what is statistic impulses, Mom? Can you please explain? Yeah. Hey, oh, hey, Bobby, do I tolerate dissent? <laughs> I think a two-year-old would say that most parents will not tolerate dissent because most two-year-olds wants to do everything against their parents. Yeah. <laughs> a terrible choose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, anything else you want to add before we conclude? Um... No, I don't think so. I just think this is like something I think um, if we, we could all benefit from talking about because um because we're not all parents, but we all do have parents, right? That's right. Yeah. Even if we don't have a continuing relationship with them right now, if they've sadly passed away, I think all of us have had some sort of parental figure that we can reflect upon because the more I, I honestly think the more introspection we do in regards to our parents the more we can we can see the way we the reason why we operate the way we do mm -hmm. and i think that can only be a good thing yeah yeah you learn from them and then exactly you reflect on yourself how you yeah not necessarily treat your kids if you have kids or if you decide not to have kids that's totally fine you will kind of um there's also the implications about your relationship with other people around your life as well yeah and and also i find it interesting having a lot of conversations and hearing people um when they go into parenthood i i've heard a lot of parents say i'm not going to turn out like my mum," or like i'm not going to turn out like my dad like almost yeah. as though the project of becoming a parent was a life is like a 20 year long project in correcting 
the trauma that you yourself you had been inflicted on. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like it's like the corrective, you know, like I'm not gonna and I, I like in my early twenties, I remember thinking that. I remember thinking I'm gonna have a daughter mm. because I'm gonna make sure that she knows she can do whatever she wants to do because I was not allowed to do a lot of things because I had my gender wrapped around me like a straight jacket. Mm. You know? And I remember thinking I'm gonna have fucking have a daughter and she's gonna be like fucking like queer and like not give a shit about men and she's gonna like be an astronaut if she wants to be an astronaut mm. and yeah i was just like no nah, that's not a healthy way of going about it because obviously your children will be whoever they are going yeah, to be they will be a the you know individual of themselves yeah exactly like yeah they're not gonna wear blue if they want to wear pink frilly dresses you know <laughs> okay um a quick mention before i wrap up the episode um i want to say congratulations to our, some of our young listeners who are in year 12 uh completing oh, yes. the, last week, the highest school certificate in new south wales and a huge shout out to can i mention her name um, i want to do a huge shout out to harriet who is our longtime listener thank you always for your beautiful support yeah i'm so look i'm, I'm just so excited that we have young people like you know harriet who are very active in politics and to be so aware about social issues that what yeah that makes me hopeful in this yeah thing. absolutely <laughs> i agree oh, i agree yeah. i'm very excited to see where harriet takes her life mm. okay so that's the end of our episode remember to subscribe to our podcast on spotify google and apple and give us a five star rating if you would like to support us what we do here at asian bitches down under head to buy me coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry so that's it from us this week and we'll talk to you next time stay safe and have conversations about your parents <laughs>